leadership anxiety, yours and theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. And just like that, we're in season three. Welcome to season three of the uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. Hey, in the last few months, we have picked up a couple of hundred new listeners. So I want to welcome you to the show. We mostly focus on leadership anxiety, family systems theory. A lot of times we'll bring a guest on to talk about their field of expertise, but no matter what they're here to talk about, we also run them through my gauntlet of leadership anxiety questions. Season three, we have a new set of questions, uh, some overlap, and we're glad you've joined us. So before I get to my guests today, just a couple of things. This podcast is a companion to a book I released with HarperCollins Publishing in April by the same name. You can go on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. If you want a primer or to dive a little deeper into family systems theory, uh, leadership anxiety, chronic anxiety, the universal sources of anxiety, how to write a genogram, the power of a verbatim, stuff like this, some of the tools that I teach, you can grab that book. I've also got some video resources on my website. My website is at stevecusswords.com. And here's the thing, folks. I know almost every podcast you listen to is asking for some kind of a review nowadays. I'm also a podcaster. I love listening to them. And everyone's asking for reviews. Uh, The fact is, particularly for those of us who are still becoming known, reviews actually are one of the best ways just to get the word out. So if we are beneficial to you on this show, if my books helped you, it would mean a lot to me if you just take a moment, leave a review on iTunes, leave a review on Amazon. Or alternatively, if you're not a review kind of guy or gal, hey, just share an episode that's helped you with someone else. That would also be a great way to spread the word. New listeners, welcome. Glad you're with us. Today's guest is Drew Dick. I had a lot of fun talking to Drew. He's uh, written several books, but we mostly spent our time talking about his most recent book, Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. And uh, it's a great book. I I read it before the interview. I've read it a couple of times now, and I keep trying to get my teenagers to read it. I recommend it for you. Uh, Drew and I covered a lot of topics. Drew has a background in all manner of leadership experience. But I wanted to start off the bat questioning his titles. Um, He somehow with his publisher got away with three titles on one book. So that's how the interview started. Here's Drew. Hope you enjoy. I, I'm a big fan of super long titles. I figure you got that whole cover. You might as well fill it up. And when I said, what was it? Sinners, quitters, and procrastinators. I figure that get, that gets us all. So <laughs> that was my thinking there. And people, I should say, there's a picture on the cover um, of, of a dog looking longingly at a plate of cookies. And yeah, that for some reason, that's resonated with people. And some people have even claimed that that's their dog on the cover. I can't confirm or deny that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, my other curiosity is, you know, you wrote a book on self-control. How much does it bother you when people buy it on impulse? <laughs> no, that's what I tell them. It's okay. <laughs> this is the one exception I'll make. You can Your self-control can totally break down if you buy my book. Of course, okay. that's a little self-serving, but um, I figure if, if they do have some impulse control problems, hopefully if they bought my book on impulse, it will help them resist future <laughs> purchases that they shouldn't make. Yeah, in so, some ways, if you're life. hoping to publish again, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot by writing this book. <laughs> right. I had a, yeah. I have a friend who wrote a book um, you know, against consumerism, basically. And he's like, how do I market this thing? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it puts you in a bit of a pickle. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that, that, there is a, a little bit of a paradox there. 
put it that way. All right. Well, before we get into some specifics that I just found fascinating in the book, uh, just for anyone who maybe hasn't heard of this book, just give us a quick overview of what it's what it's addressing, what it's covering. Yeah, sure. Basically, it's looking at the the virtue of self control, both from a biblical perspective, looking what Scripture has to say about it. And then also digging a little bit into the science. I talked to a lot of, I'm not a scientist myself, um, but or a psychologist, but I did talk to some neuroscience people, psychologists, sociologists, as I was re- researching for this. Kind of wanted to look at it from both sides. And also it was a, a book that grew out of just a personal frustration. You know, I wish I could say I was attracted to the topic uh, purely out of academic interest or something, but the truth is, just looking back over my life, realizing, man, I, I have room to grow in this area of self-control. And so initially, actually, I wasn't even thinking of writing a book. I was just reading books about the topic uh, really for myself. And then all of a sudden, over time, I realized, hey, you know what? Maybe this could be helpful for other people. And so it sort of morphed into a book project. And my hope is that it's as helpful to other people as it has been for me. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just testify. I've read it twice now. I think oh. it's an incredibly helpful book. Well, and, thank uh, you. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. That's I don't even know if my mom's read it twice, so I think you're you're in a pretty elite category. I am <laughs> in an elite category. I feel I feel elite. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's get into some of the content, Drew. So um I, I one of the first things that really uh, struck me that I thought was a fascinating insight is when you said how uh when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness you made this startling observation that all of Satan's temptations are shortcuts. Hmm. Tell us a bit mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, I'm I, I'm sure that's not original to me, but I remember just reading that account of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness and thinking that because everything Satan offers him, you know, he offers him bread, you know, make these stones into bread. Well, he's going to get fed when the angels come to tend to him. Uh, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Man, Jesus is going to get that anyway, right? Um, but I think the temptation is real because some people go, oh, was Jesus even really tempted? He's just sort of like, nah, no thanks. I think play it was acting. real. Yeah, I don't think it was play acting because um, those were things that Jesus would get eventually anyway. But the main difference is that in order to get them, there was a lot of things he had to do. He had to go through the cross, most notably, right? The, the agony and the pain of crucifixion in order to be exalted uh, by his heavenly father. And so, yeah, but the the appeal, I think, in Satan's temptation was you can have this all now, man, just snap your fingers, just show your glory, uh, you know, just grab what you know you deserve anyway right now. And yeah, my my observation is, man, I think that's how it works for us too. I think think, um, the enemy still tempts people and he does it in the same way because you think, man, oh, you know what? You don't have to you don't have to wait on God to fulfill you in this area. Just grab that fulfillment for yourself. Grab that pleasure. Get it now. And so it, it's good to listen to that. And when you feel like you're being tempted by something that's really just a unethical or sinful shortcut, that might not be the voice of God. That's probably <laughs> the voice of the enemy. Well, and one of my reactions to it, I, I've been a lead pastor for 14 years. I've been in ministry for 20-something, 23, 24 and we went through a five to seven year, maybe eight year period that just felt like an onslaught of pain and struggle. We had a lot of really good people in our church die. What I'm noticing about myself now is it's almost like I believe the lie that I got that over with. And 
that for me makes the shortcut even more tempting than it was before. Oh. I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It's like I, I it's almost like I banked struggle and I'm <laughs> right. expecting no more struggle. And you referenced that you talked about how even though we um we overcame temptation once, it can actually put us at higher risk for the same temptation the next time. Yeah. Tell us your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think there is a, a psychological dynamic to that for sure. Uh, one of the big aha moments uh, for me, as you know, reading the book was the, the literature on willpower. And basically there was a, a landmark study about 20 years ago where sociologists discovered that willpower, that is the emotional energy you need to resist temptation, to do difficult things, that this willpower is actually a finite resource. So it runs out, it's depletable, and it runs out pretty quickly as well. Um, Even during the day, if I recall, right? Absolutely. Even throughout the course of a day. Yeah, you have a hard day. And I've seen, and when I read those studies, I meant, I went, wow, okay, this really makes sense of a, out of a lot of the behaviors I've witnessed in my own life and in the lives of others. Like if you have a really hard day at work that involved, you know, trying to meet a deadline or something, I was more likely to come home and kind of snap at my kids and be a jerk to my wife. Um, I'll just be totally honest. Not that it excuses that, but it was helpful to understand that you have this limited pool of willpower and it draws down. I think you see it all throughout scripture too. I didn't, I don't think I wrote about this in the book, but I think of Elijah, you know, after he has the dramatic showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and you think he'd be riding high. What does he do after he goes and cries in a cave, right? <laughs> um, because we're, we're finite, we're weak, our willpower runs out and it does so rather quickly. So yeah, a couple takeaways from that, I think, is just to make sure that especially if you're headed into a hard season or difficult or tempting situation, that you are replenished, um, that your willpower reserves aren't low. I was talking to the, um, a group of pastors recently, and one of them said he'd been a part of an accountability group one of the guys in the group said, you know, I've witnessed the weirdest thing in my life. The times that I've fallen prey to lust are right after I've been at a ministry conference where I was giving talks and leading things. And one by one, they kind of all had a similar experience. And it was so perplexing because they thought, why right after I'm doing something spiritual, I should be on like this spiritual high, you know, and my, my, I should be living this really holy, righteous life. But it was actually right after that that they'd have these, these failings. And again, not justifying it, but it's help, helpful to understand that you're limited. Even after doing something for God, maybe sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do on the heels of that is get enough rest so you're not vulnerable to temptation or discouragement. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about what you're offering here is I've, I've heard that dynamic before that after a spiritual high, we had this low but most people really talk about it in the realm of uh, temptation and Satan. Right. I like that, uh, not that you're dismissing that, but I like that you, it, it feels like you're giving us more that we can do. Because when, when you say, oh, yeah, you're going to be more tempted, it feels like you're almost a passive, oh, well, what can you do? Right. But you're actually giving us insight that we can actually take charge of that and do something about it. Yeah, that's a great observation. I, I think it's not either or, right? I mean, the enemy's not above capitalizing on our, psychological weaknesses for sure. Uh, but you're right. I think sometimes there's a passivity and resignation to the attitude that just goes, oh, okay, well, Satan's coming after me. Uh, what can I do? Um, or, you know, I, I kind of shake my head. I'll be honest. Sometimes when we see these high profile moral failings of leaders and then people just go, oh, that's awful. Satan poached another one, that poor guy. And you're like, uh, yeah, okay. Let's not give 
give Satan too much credit here. Uh, certainly, uh, there's a role that uh, our spiritual adversary plays. But at the same time, man, we need to be vigilant and connected to God and serious about cultivating uh, these virtues in our lives, paying attention to our character. So, yeah, it's a little bit of both for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned Elijah. You know, he's a classic story of this incredible spiritual high of defeating the enemy, and then he's running, and he's he's really suicidal. Right. Um, Take me now, Lord. <laughs> yeah. It, what's interesting to me about Elijah is is he self-isolates, but then he feels alone. Like he's the one uh, that put himself in self-isolation. Have, have you ever done anything like that? Like right. I find myself when I'm depleted, one of the signs of depletion in my life is I do move into self-pity. Have you had that oh, kind yeah. of situation as well? Absolutely. Yeah, and isolation too. Isn't that the weird? You're, you're absolutely right. I've never thought of the story of Elijah in that way that he goes and hides in a cave and by doing so, he isolates himself and then complains, I'm the only one left, right? <laughs> uh, of course you're the only one left. You, you went and hid in the cave. Um, and I think we do that. And I think part of the reason, I mean, that that's sometimes after something really difficult, a spiritual high, it can also be after we really mess up, right? So I've seen that pattern in my own life. If I feel like I'm really not living the Christian life well, my tendency is, to kind of isolate myself, stay away from Christian community, stop reading my Bible even, and then I get my act together and then I'll come back on good terms to God, which of course is just <laughs> exactly the opposite thing we should do, right? Those are the times we need to rush back to God, seek forgiveness, get accountability, get plugged into community. Um, so yeah, whatever it is, whether it's discouragement or sin, man, isolation is never, never the answer. Uh, sometimes it's good, of course, to get alone if you really need to be refreshed and replenished, especially if you're kind of introverted. Uh, but you don't want to do that for long periods of time. That's when you're really vulnerable, I think. Yeah. In the book, you had this wonderful conversation with a sociologist, um, uh, Bradley Wright, and he actually lays out for you a diabolical plan to eliminate someone's self-control. It'd be really helpful if you just lay that out for us. <laughs> yeah, the, he's, he's a friend of mine. He's a great guy, brilliant, brilliant guy, a sociologist and a believer as well. Um, and to yeah, kind of get my head around the whole concept of willpower and how it's depletable, I, I did talk to him. And yeah, I remember he, he said, I'm going to probably misquote it a little bit, but he said, Drew, if I wanted to de destroy your willpower, I would make sure that you got in a fight with your wife, because interpersonal conflict depletes willpower, uh, that you only got three hours of sleep. And then I forget what the other thing was. And yeah, and I make some kind of comment in the book about how well, I made a note never to invite him to my house. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's true. Because in that, you know, it's not just temptation that wears down our willpower. It's interpersonal con conflict. It is lack of sleep. It is uh, decision-making, um, multitasking, all of these things. And sometimes you can't avoid them, but sometimes you can. And when you, when you can, it is really important to learn how to avoid certain activities that deplete your willpower so that you're not vulnerable temptation. And, you know, I wish one of my regrets in the book is not writing enough about rest and about sleep specifically. Because here's the thing, I, I think I got some good strategies in there and some wisdom, but man, none of it works on sleep. <laughs> I'm just going to admit that uh, you, man, you get, you get three, four hours a night and you're going to fall back into that old temptation, whether it's, you know, eating poorly or a sin issue or whatever. Um, because we're just, not built to run half empty. 
and sleep is so important. Another thing, sorry, I might be getting off on a bit of a tangent here, but um, that I found interesting, a study that I ran across after writing the book was the role of chronic pain uh, when it comes to willpower. And people that have chronic pain issues or illnesses, actually, you know, that takes a daily toll on their willpower. And so if that's, if that's you, it's something that you want to be aware of and give yourself a little grace for knowing that like, listen, Hey, I can't be Superman every day and conquer the world. I've got this chronic condition. Um, and not that that's an excuse. You can always grow your willpower and, and get better at, uh, bending off temptation, but at the same time, cut yourself some slack too. It's almost like you're offering us, um, like an inventory. Like I, I, I find that type A driven leaders, which is how I would describe myself, we believe the absolute lie that we're invincible. Or sometimes the way we'll say it is, well, I'm not invincible, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Right, put a spiritual twist on it. (laughs) Yeah, but I I really like how you've actually laid out for us some of the threats to willpower and self-control that you could almost look back on your week and say, okay, how much relational conflict have I been in? How much sleep have I gotten? And actually get a genuine helpful warning system going that, right. that says, okay, I actually need to take more seriously my limits. Yeah, no, I think that's good. Um, I think you can absolutely do that. You can also look at the week ahead and go, man, Thursday, that's going to be a tough day of meetings. On Maybe Wednesday afternoon, I take off and go sit in the park and read a book for a few hours. You know, I don't know, but just building in, and I understand we're all um, and it's an especially, especially challenging, I think for those type A leaders that just want to go, 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 um, conquer the world to actually carve out margin for rest, recharging, right. Um, in their lives, but that's an essential, essential thing. And yeah, when you're taking a look at your life, one of the other things I talk about in the book, as you know, is how we always overestimate how much our future selves are going to be able to do. <laughs> so, you know, the, the thing that, inspired talking about that was a study that looked at brain scans of individuals as they thought about their future selves. And the interesting thing was their brains behaved exactly the same way as when they were thinking about other people entirely. Uh, and we think of these future selves, these future versions, versions of ourselves as total heroes. Oh yeah. Well, of course, you know, I, I've signed up to run so many 10 Ks. You wouldn't even believe it because <laughs> it's four months down the road. And of course I'm going to eat healthy and exercise every day until then. Right. Um, or you think, oh, I take on that responsibility for this because it's in the fall. And, you know, it's like you feel like it's never going to come. But then, of course, it does. And not only are you not some heroic uh, self-discipline ninja when the time comes, you're pretty much the same as you are now and you get yourself into problems. So, yeah, being realistic about what you can take on, especially down the road, is essential as well. Yeah, you actually reference the, uh, the hothead, like that phrase, and you go into the neuroscience of the hot, cold empathy gap, I think you called it. That's right. Yeah, that's not my phrase, of course, but um, that's huge. And, and the idea basically is one of the ways to explain why we overestimate how much we can do in the future or how we'll behave in a certain uh, situation that's really tempting is because often when we're thinking about it, we're not tempted at the moment, right? Maybe, oh, I won't respond in a harsh way to that person up and you're not angry right now, right? (laughs) Get in that situation when they really ticked you off and things might be differently. Or you think, Oh, that's it. I'm just going to eat really well every day. Well, I'm not hungry right now. Uh, but when I'm hungry, you know, come six o'clock and really craving pizza, things might change. You get into a hot state that is you're actually tempted. Uh, and so that really, 
that that makes the the process of planning ahead so important and kind of making these uh, determinations before you get into those situations. Uh, and, and, and it saves you from making decisions in the heat of the moment. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book that I found profound is when you got into chunking, the idea that your brain actually chunks habits and, and um, recaptures mental energy. I would love for you to teach us more about what that is. Yeah, I just realized early on that, you know, it's important to understand willpower when it came to this topic, obviously. Um, but it was equally uh, important to understand how habits work. And the reason habits are so important, because like I've said, you have that limited pool of willpower. And even though it can grow, it is like a muscle. So the more you use it, the more you do the right thing, your, your willpower is going to strengthen. But it's never enough. And this is where um, habits are so crucial. Because habits are those automatic routines that when you're doing them, you're not expending willpower. You just do them on automatic. Yeah, so habits are so important because they actually preserve willpower, um, especially if they're good habits. Um, and the way habits work, like in your brain, it, it's interesting because take a, a behavior like as simple as driving a car. Well, it's simple, of course, if you've driven a car a lot. If you haven't, it's quite difficult and effortful uh, the first time you're driving a car. And I talk about this a little bit as an example in the book. Uh, how nervous I was the first time I drove my dad's big uh, Cadillac when I was learning how to drive. Um, but what happens is at first, the, the, the front part of your brain is just kind of lit up like a Christmas tree because you're learning how to do something novel, something new. And then as um, you learn it and it becomes a habit, it actually gets relegated to this space deep in your brain. It's kind of like it's put into storage, right? And then in the future when you do it, it's actually quite easy. And that doesn't just apply to kind of simple mechanical tasks like driving or brushing your teeth or whatever. Uh, it also refers to more complex tasks. It refers to how we do spiritual disciplines. Um, and it's important to note, like, the guy who gets up every day and goes and runs for five miles in the morning, he's not sitting there, you know, psyching himself up and going, okay, that's it. I got to get out there. I just got to pull myself up. No, he's, it's, it's automatic. It's almost painless because it's a habit, Right. It's just something that he does every morning. And so really, I realized that the goal, um, when it comes to just healthy things and when it comes to like living a life of, of holiness and righteousness, it's to build in these healthy, holy habits to your life. So um, John Ortberg has a great quote, Pastor John Ortberg. Um, he, he says, when it comes, um, you know, he says, willpower, no, sorry, I'm going to mess this up. Habits eat willpower for breakfast. That's, yes, the that's, right. that's the quote. <laughs> and, yep. and I love that. And basically what he means is if you've got a, uh, someone coming into a situation uh, that's, that's maybe tempting or difficult and one person is relying on willpower alone and the other person is relying on good habits that are set in place, man, bet on the habit person every single time because habits are so powerful. Usually we like to think that our actions are just the result of conscious thought and we're making these decisions. But the truth is most often we're just defaulting to our habits, and they can be very good habits or very bad ones. One of the things I found really helpful, um, and I don't know if you meant it this way, but as a, as a way to measure uh, how habitual something has become for me, is you said when you ask somebody about their day, they never actually mention their habits. You know, what did you do today? They mm -hmm. don't say, well, I got out of bed and I brushed my teeth, or in the, in the illustration <laughs> you used, I drove a car. I think that's a, actually a good way to measure how well a spiritual habit is being ingrained into my life. Uh -huh. 
you know, is how little I think to say it's what I did today. It's just such a normalized part of my day. It's like brushing my teeth. Right. Isn't that true? Right. And you don't even think like, oh, I ate breakfast this morning because you probably right. just did, right? You just did. Yeah. It's not interesting yeah. enough because it's not novel. I like the way you said it. it's no longer novel. Right. And I think that it wouldn't that be cool if it was, and not that it's like, oh, my time, you know, praying or spending time in the word is just not worth noting. But at the same time, if if it's such a regular part of your spiritual diet and the way you're getting your nourishment, maybe it should be a little more like not, not even taking note of a meal. And in fact, if you missed it today, that's when you notice, right? <laughs> that, yeah. um, that there's something missing. Absolutely. Um, I think that's true of, of, you know, the people that, that I really admired that I look up to for them, uh, talking to God, um, serving other people, you name it, whatever, you know, uh, things that they do just on a regular basis are so habitual for them. They've just become ingrained. Um, and that's not to say that, that there's no credit due. I think that's just what character is when, when living a life of righteousness becomes so habitual for you and just effortless in a way. Yeah, that's really good. All right. You, you have a whole section about um, internet, digital devices, social media, and, and we're not going to get into that as much as I think it was right on point. Here's what I'm curious about is one of the things you mentioned in passing is how even those who got some of the social media uh, apps going are now coming out of the closet and admitting that they designed them to be addictive, that right. they designed them with a dopamine hit in mind. I'm curious, Drew, do you think that we're going to look back on them the way we look back on cigarette companies in the 1980s? Like it, that's what it made me think of is there were these multi-billion dollar empires intentionally causing addictive um, habits and we now judge them as evil. Mm. Do you think that's where we're heading with some of these companies? <laughs> well? I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. And I think there's already a, a bit of a backlash because, um, and not only just because some of these um uh, these tech uh, executives, in this case, as a co-founder of Facebook, um, have been so openly critical of kind of the sinister ways in which they're trying to capture our attention and addict us to these technological devices. But because we're going to see a whole crop of digital natives, that is the kids that have been born with and, and raised with the internet, with smartphones, uh, and we're already seeing some really harmful effects on their, their self-esteem, on anxiety levels, on socialization, and there's just going to be this awakening. I, I do think that one day, you know, in the same way, like I'll watch old movies and you see like people just sitting there casually smoking in like a, a nice uh, business office or something like right. that, right? right. And, and I think someday we'll look back in the way that we just hand uh, digital devices to little children um, as a similar, maybe not quite as physically abusive, obviously, but just as foolish in many ways. And that's scary because... I get it. The struggle's real. I got three little kids and there's no way be better to keep them entertained sometimes than handing them an iPad or a phone. Yeah. Uh, and yet, man, we, we've really got to be careful, especially as Christians, because so much of this addiction to novelty and tech is really at odds with the, the, the spiritual life, right? Of yeah. being engaged in these kind of slower, harder disciplines of prayer and scripture reading and community. Um, so we really need to be aware of this and kind of put in some boundaries that keep it. I'm not, I'm not one of those guys. It's like, Oh, all tech is evil and you should get rid of everything. But we do really need to be wise about the way that we engage them. Yeah. 
Yeah, the last reaction I'd love to get from you is right at the end of the book, you actually celebrate the power of structure and even making like rigid rules or external rules. And the reaction I had to that was um, is legalism has become such a dirty word and we've swung the pendulum so far away from legalism that we're now, it feels like we're now in a bit of a free fall, you know, mm-hmm. in our attempt mm-hmm. to be free. And yet you're making the case for some form of, I'd hate to call it a legalism, but you're definitely making the case for a, a scaffolding, an external scaffolding around our lives. I, you know, not yes. not with the same shame that it, that it carried before, but tell us about that, about the idea of building an external set of rules uh, to make us healthier people. Yeah, I think that's well said. I like the way you put it, that the pendulum has swung too far. I'm sorry about that. Uh, that the pendulum has really swung. Um, and I just see a lot of people that kind of, you know, anytime you start talking about kind of employing some wise prescriptions for how to live the Christian life, the automatic reaction can be like, oh, that sounds like legalism, right? Um, but you know what? I think, you know, the Bible says make no pr- provision for the flesh. I think that has a lot of application. Uh, we're, we're just wise when we plan ahead and set up some structures that actually allow uh, space in our lives for us to grow spiritually. And tech is certainly one of those areas. One of the things I talk about in the book is a bright line strategy. And that's um, uh, just a term for what researchers um, call hard and fast rules that you don't violate. So, you know, one might be, you know, I don't um, uh, look at my phone after 7 p.m., say, right? And again, back to the willpower thing, uh, what's important there is it actually preserves your willpower. Because if you're tempted to go hop on your phone and just scroll through social media at nine o'clock at night, you go, oh, I don't know. I don't do that past 7 p.m., right? Or if it's like, uh, I'm really tempted by ice cream, which I am, I'm not going to have it in the freezer. (laughs) Um, And so those, you know, uh, not far from being legalism, I think they actually free you up um, to avoid certain behaviors that you know are going to drag you down. Yeah, that's. I think that's really helpful. I I love. Um, I always am interested in re-examining assumptions, and mm. you know, it feels like when you throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, what was it about that structure that we had that actually benefited us? I love how you you suggest that it's actually more freeing for us. I think that's really helpful. Hmm, thank you. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think um, you know, anytime there are some. Um, potential pitfalls with this topic, especially when you're talking about self-control, because people can become legalistic and judgmental and thinking that they've arrived looking down on other people. And obviously, if that kind of stuff is happening, or if you're layering on shame to yourself and others, uh, you're definitely missing the boat. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's fine, I think, to plan ways that, that, and prayerfully planning ways that you can avoid temptation. The Bible says to flee temptation, right? It doesn't say to stand and fight it because uh, God knows that's a losing strategy.
Well, Drew, I think you've postponed it long enough. I think it's time uh, for the gauntlet of leadership anxiety questions. I'm, I am terrified, but yes, you know, as ready as I'll ever be. That's the idea. I try to strike <laughs> terror in the hearts of my guests. Uh, we have six questions. We ask these questions of every guest. This is season three, so I've actually got two fresh questions. You'll be the first one I ask. So let's let's see how it goes. We'll take them one at a time. Awesome. All right. So I believe the first step in anxiety management is early intervention. I think one of the primary issues is we don't realize we're anxious until we're really, really anxious. Hmm. And you can first notice it in your body. So between a spinning mind, a racing heart, and a tightening gut, where does anxiety first start for you? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I think it's a spinning mind. I'll take option A. Um, yeah, when I'm, especially if uh, this is where it manifests for me often, and I should have a disorder, diagnosed anxiety disorder, so it's really important for me to kind of read those early warning signs so it doesn't get to a place where it's actually incapacitating. Um, and one of the, the, the warning signs for me is if I'm in bed at night and my mind is racing and I'm going through, you know, several different topics that I'm worried about or things coming down the pike and I can't let them go. And often my wife will, you know, she's great. She'll be like, hey, listen, you need to take something off your plate. You need to kind of put this aside do something else for a while. Uh, but that's one thing I certainly have to watch out for because, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, man. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure mm. uh, if, you can, if you can deal with it early enough. And, and another thing for me is just to breathe. Oh, my goodness. I mean, those stupid apps, I know they're kind of silly, but they like slow you down and, and you just breathe deeply for a minute or two. It's incredible how you're not even aware of your breathing when you're anxious, but you're taking kind of shallow, short breaths. And uh, so that's another coping mechanism as well. Yeah, that's excellent. In, uh, in family systems theory, it spends its time interested in chronic anxiety. So acute mm. anxiety would be when your kid's playing on the road and they're in actual danger and you have to rescue them. But chronic anxiety is actually when you believe you're under threat, but you're really not. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so for example, uh, in my case, it would be if somebody's not happy with me because I'm a people pleaser, um, I, my body believes I'm under threat, even though I'm actually safe. Hmm. So with that premise, what is something that you think you need in any given moment that you don't actually need? Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Um, well, I'm going to steal a page uh, from your playbook because I'm a bit of a people pleaser too. And so often if I don't feel, um, well, here's the weird thing. I don't care if people like me, but I want them to respect me. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's a little dark. Yeah. No, no but that's good. If I feel like there's someone that I care about uh, that's not giving me the affirmation that I think I'm due, it's, it seems really silly when you say it out loud like this. But <laughs> um, that's, that's pretty unsettling for me. Um, and it does cause some consternation and anxiety. Um, and it's unhealthy. And I realize that man, those are the times I need to go back to what really matters, who I am in Christ, uh, knowing that God loves and affirms me. Uh, but that's, that's definitely an ongoing challenge. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. All right, number three, uh, it's, it's very common, particularly for leaders, but I think it's actually just common across the board, that sometimes we're the last person to know when we're not emotionally well. Hmm. So, who in your life knows when you're not well before you know it? And how does that person know? 
Oh man, that's you know, and it, I, it's definitely my wife. Okay. She's just, uh, yeah, very intuitive sort of person, and of course, she knows me better than anyone. Um, and so, you know, she'll just kind of stop me sometimes and say, "It seems like you're carrying a lot of stress right now." And you know, instead of just keeping the stress to myself, uh, <laughs> of course, I'm I'm a very verbal person, and so I will go and kind of you know run my mouth and tell her about what I'm dealing with or whatever. Um, and so she's, yeah, she's always, and she's such a gift that way to me because she will pull me up short and bring a little bit of perspective, uh, uh, to whatever situation I'm talking about, but then cut to the heart of the issue and go, Hey, listen, it's not really just this one thing. If you resolve this, uh, you need to step away, think about this differently, do something else. Uh, and so she is, yeah, she has a way and I don't know how she does it, but knowing exactly when I'm headed down that path. Okay. Yeah. And when she uh, invites you into that in the moment, do you feel threatened in the moment or do oh, you yeah. always receive it? Yeah, as yeah. A gift? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm like, no, I get defensive. Right. Okay. I was about to say, yes. Thank I'm you for, yeah. Fine. <laughs> yeah. So you know it's a gift overall, but in the moment you feel under threat and you have to figure out that it's a gift. That's exactly it. With a little okay. perspective after, as I'm sitting here talking to you, you know, I realize, <laughs> oh no, she's, she's got my back. And in the <laughs> yeah. moment, I'm going, what are you talking about? No, this is really what I'm dealing with is hard and blah, 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 blah. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately, my first instinct is to uh, defend myself, rationalize when she's 98% of the time <laughs> completely yes. right. Yeah, 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 that's good. Oh, Drew, you're doing great. So oh, number, good, good. <laughs> number four, we're almost halfway through. Um, you know, if you're in the public eye in any kind of way, whether you're a leader or, you know, obviously you've done a lot of work in publishing, that's a very public role. Um, criticism is difficult. It comes with a territory. Everyone tells you that. I remember when I was in seminary and person after person says, you're going to get criticized. But knowing that is one thing, but getting hit is another thing. Uh -huh. And what I've learned over the time is criticism is fine, but cumulative criticism can actually really do deep damage. Mm. Um, do you want to hazard a guess? Because obviously I'm throwing this on you. You may never have thought about this before. Do you want to hazard a guess? How many hits can you take before you need an intervention? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, and, and I should say at the outset, I mean, the, the leaders are targets for criticism. Yeah. Uh, I fortunately am not really, I don't see myself in much of a leadership role. I mean, I'm an author. Um, I have, you know, I speak maybe once a month if that, but usually I'm kind of a guest speaker or something. So all to say the people that really are taking the arrows, well, frankly, are the people like you that are in the trenches. Of ministry. Yeah, you're you're uh, actually the guy it, it that when you come in, back. You, you're the guy that when you come to speak at my church, people use you to criticize me if you're the guest speaker. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and that's what I love, right? Because when you're a guest speaker, it's like this one talk that you've given like a hundred times. So you've got yeah. it down cold. Whereas yeah. when you're the pastor, you know, every Sunday comes like uh, passing fence posts on the highway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you gotta, yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, I mean, compared to what and, and I know this because I grew up in the church. My dad is a pastor mm. and I just saw how you just you have a target on your back when you're a leader. Yeah. Um, anyway, I do get some criticism, certainly, um, because I have a lot of opinions that I, I share through my writing. And um, and so, yeah, and I think I have a pretty low threshold uh, when it comes to true criticism. Now, what makes it more endurable is probably the fact that the criticisms that I get are often from people that I don't know very well. Uh, when it comes from people closer to you, man, that's when it can really sting. 
And in those circumstances, man, I think I could take maybe one or two of those hits a year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I've never, this is one of those questions that's you're the first one I've asked. So I'm still playing around with how to word it. Um, but here's what it makes me wonder, Drew, can you think of a time, does a time come to mind where you look back on that time and you say, wow, I, I was under attack uh, cool. from numerous sources at the same time. And if nothing comes to mind, no problem. But let, let's see if that brings anything up. Yeah, no, I do remember a time. Um, and I won't get into like super specifics about what organization it was, um, but where I had, well, two or three people that were extremely critical of me. And again, for someone who's a people pleaser, um, it was difficult uh, to navigate that. And then, you know, and it's almost a truism that most criticisms, not all, but some have, uh, even if they're unfair, there's a grain of truth in there, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and that's so, right. yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so in this case, even though I felt like it was pretty unfair, uh, after the initial defensiveness and, and frankly, just anger about it, I had to uh, kind of pull back and go, you know what, there's something here that I need to change um, about my myself. Um, and, you know, I tend to be a very jovial, lighthearted, silly kind of guy. Um, <laughs> and I realized I needed to be a little more serious. And um, so, yeah, that was a, a constructive experience, ultimately. Uh, but, man, it's never it's never easy. And people are like, oh, criticism is a gift. It's like, well, yeah, it doesn't feel like that when you're going through it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's right. <laughs> maybe a year or two after. Uh, but of course you can learn and you can grow. Yeah. I, I do think one of the um, essentials to leadership health is just paying attention to how much criticism you've withstood over how much time, Oof, you know, if, you, if you're in a month or a few weeks where it's really an onslaught that kind of like you were talking about with your book where you can almost measure your um, resilience. You know, right. And your body. Oh, well, there's a there's a book. I haven't read it, but it's one of the best titles for a book. Your body. The, the body, body keeps, keeps the score. The score. It's yeah. an incredible book. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just think, man, that's true. And when I think of man, someone who's been in ministry for decades, the, the cumulative effect of the stress, the interpersonal conflict, the the betrayals, the losses, the friends that have left that you took personally, even if you shouldn't have, you know, I mean, all of that, it adds up, man. Yeah. So it is crucial. And that's why I'm so glad for your ministry uh, is it's crucial to pay attention to your soul and your psyche. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, most of the podcast um, we've only dealt with internal anxiety, but the other power of family systems theory is it trains you to notice how um, anxiety operates between people in groups. Hmm. So, Anxiety is contagious. You catch it the way you catch a cold. Hmm. Where, where have you seen anxiety be contagious in a group of people? Oh, man, that is really interesting. Well, this is kind of a weird response. But I think you can see this happening in a weird way on social media. Yeah. You know, uh, and sometimes the anxiety is justified, perhaps, if there's a real outrage. But sometimes it's not. And <laughs> that's where it gets weird. When people get really bent out of shape about things that really aren't that big a deal. And, you know, I just, I, I've had so many conversations recently with Christians that have these deep-seated fears that, oh man, I'm worried that my child is going to get abducted. Why is that? Well, I, I've been seeing these stories in the news and, and it, it, it skews your whole perspective of the world often because every 
you know, you might know thousands of people through Facebook and other things. And so you see everyone who gets cancer, everyone who endures some sort of a hardship and it's all amplified. Whereas even 10 years ago, you would have never even known about a lot of those things. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, I mean, it can be this, this weird hotbed of anxiety when we go online and, and come across stories. And of course you want to be empathetic and, and you want to, um, uh, pray for the people involved, but at the same time, there's only so much you can take. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, my wife and I have been talking about this. Sometimes you just need to unplug. Um, yeah. yeah. There's only so many hills you can die on. Exactly. Yeah. And and you almost feel bad kind of scrolling past all of the, the loss and the tragedy and the hardship and the outrage. Uh, but man, I don't, I just don't think we were designed to take it all in. Well, and you know, I think the other complicating factor in this is, is you and I are both white guys and mm. uh which means we benefit from privilege mm-hmm. and it's it's i find a tremendous challenge because it feels like all of a sudden we've all lost our patience with brokenness where everything right. everything has to be fixed right away on the other hand uh i benefit from some of the systems and structures that oppress others so it's a luxury for mm. me to even suggest that but it is a dilemma we're in right now i think yeah no you're right and there and there's a lot of good i mean the, the cool thing about social media, I would say, is that it's kind of democratized the, the public square in some ways, yeah, right? So it's yeah. not just politicians and famous people and whatever that get to have a voice. And that's what I love about it. Um, on the other hand, though, uh, there can be a sort of mob mentality that takes hold uh, yeah. and really skews things. And so, yeah, it's just one of those things definitely wise to, to uh, jump in in moderation. Oh, that's great. All right. Final question. Um, I, I think one of the reasons uh, leaders carry anxiety is it's a simple case of um, input output, too much output, not enough input. Oh. Uh, anxiety, uh, I believe, is actually a spiritual force that dehumanizes us. Like when you're mm. really anxious, you're feeling less alive and less human. And uh, love is one of the most humanizing uh, forces. So with that mm. in mind, uh, Drew, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Oh, man, yeah. Huh. Let me think about that for a second. <laughs> That's, I'm just you know, reflecting on what you said about the effect of anxiety versus love, and that's so true. When you're anxious, your world just narrows, right? Yeah. And yeah. You, 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 it kind of flattens your whole experience, and it's very dehumanizing. You're absolutely right. Um, man, I think it's, it's, uh, maybe it's an obvious answer, but it just being with my little, my little family, I got three, uh, fairly young kids and, um, I'm just thinking about that because this weekend I had a beautiful time with them just crawling all over me, holding our seven month old baby. <laughs> you just, you feel like you're not out there in the world trying to prove anything. Uh, they love you of course, cause I'm their dad and, uh, and it's, just sort of that unconditional, uh, pure love that, that that you can't replicate elsewhere often, um, and that's really refreshing uh, for me. It recharges me, uh, and I just I love it. I love being a dad, um, and and the cool thing is too, you feel that in doses as well when you're connected to the body of Christ. And it's not always like that, but through the years, I've had moments where you're with the family of God, and it's so cool because. That's the thing that unites you, you different race, different socioeconomic status, you know, different backgrounds, and yet you all come together and you're really truly a family that even transcends blood relations. Uh, and there's something really 
beautiful about that too. So, man, I, I know church is tough, man, especially these days, people are really allergic to institutions, but that's one of my, uh, soapboxes is don't give up on church because, uh, it's a lot of heartache, but when it works, when it happens, like it's supposed to, it is one of the most wonderful things on earth. True. I love that answer. I've asked this question of every guest that's ever been on the show. You're the first person who has talked about the power of the body of Christ. And I really think you've captured something, you know, the, the power of being loved by people who would not otherwise love you mm. unless they're in the church with you is really beautiful. Yeah, no, I think so. I, I saw one guy, this was a while back talking about how he no longer forms his community according to common beliefs, but only wants to be with people that are really good people, you know, and I thought that sounds good, but it's totally backwards because yeah, the, the right. cool thing about gathering around our, our allegiance to Christ is that we have to put up with each other and learn to love each other across all these other barriers. Um, and, and there is something beautiful uh, about that happening rather than just finding people that are like you, same stage in life. You know, I mean, that can get pretty monotonous, but that, that's one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ. Wonderful. Drew, I had high expectations for today. I thought this would be a delightful and very thoughtful episode, and it turns out to be exactly that. So thank you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you. This has been such a fun conversation. I'm honored to be part of it. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.